Julia from the United States, where I'm finally back, and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. Vanessa, it's good to see you. It's good to be back in the U.S., and uh, how's it going? What did I miss? I've been in Portugal for a while. I feel like you've been gone forever. Well, you missed sort of (laughs) Harvest really kind of wrapping up here in Napa Valley. A lot of people I've talked to, winemakers have just brought in sort of the last bit of the fruit, so... um, this by no means means that they're going on vacation because now they have all this wine in tank. So <laughs> they still have a lot of work to do. But um, yeah, that's that's pretty much what you missed. Good. Well, I saw a little bit of harvest over in Portugal. I just spent the month there in both the northern part in uh, Porto and then down in Lisbon as well and visiting some of the surrounding wine regions, which is conveniently our topic of discussion for today. So we're going to be talking all things Portugal. I don't know about you, but I feel like everyone is going to Portugal, not just me. There's been a lot of uh, Instagramming and talking about the region, but have you been to Portugal yourself? I have. I went um, several years ago. I stayed in Porto and in the Douro Valley, and it was so beautiful. The people were so nice. The wines, um, I think what surprised me the most and what I've still taken away is, um, you know, we think, I think a lot of us port as just being sweet, a sweet fortified wines, Mm -hmm. but they make outstanding dry wines as well. So that really blew me away. Yes. Uh, excellent takeaways. I had some of the, some of the same takeaways really overwhelmingly beautiful region. And, you know, you and I both live in Napa Valley where it is beautiful all the time. And it took my breath away to be in the Douro Valley. I mean, truly stunning views, the Douro River, climbing through the region with these sloping hills that just go all the way down into it, terraced vineyards. I mean, just unbelievable. And then, you know, the whole river just winds all the way through. So you can't see you know, from from east to west, the whole thing. So it kind of makes it very magical in some ways. And uh, it sounds like you got to stay out in the Douro, which I did as well. And they're, you know, they're very different, the Douro, the Douro Valley versus like the city of Porto. And we'll talk about that relationship because it's a very, very important one within the region uh, of, of Porto and the Douro Valley in terms of winemaking. I learned so much by being there and we're going to, again, we're going to talk about all this, but it just reminded me of the importance of visiting wine regions. I cannot tell you how different I felt about the region, how much I, I learned just by being there and seeing it all happen and how humbling an experience it was because it's not easy to farm these grapes in these regions. I'm sure you saw when you were there these really, really steep hillsides. Um, and they have these stone walls, right? These patamares that they, they've they built to hold up the – the literally to keep the, the vines from falling down the hillside uh, in many cases. Um, and But there's – some people are now planting up and down the hillside as well. But um, but those, those ancient stone walls on the hillsides, just tracing them, that's what I think of when I think of the Dora. Valley. Yeah. Uh, so much good imagery, all things that we're going to talk about later. And this is, this is essentially your guide to all things Portugal. So, you know, Portugal makes a lot of different wines, so we're not going to cover everything, but we're going to get to as much as we possibly can, including how these fortified port wines, dessert style wines are made, talking about the dry wines, talking about Vino Verde, which is one of my favorite regions for producing really great crispy white wines. Although I will say, you know, I think the wine that we're trying today 
from that region really speaks to the progression of Vino Verde and where they're like sort of headed. Um, and then of course, because everything ties back to how I eat, uh, how to pair these wines, right? So we got to talk about what we're going to eat with the, with the port, what we're going to drink, uh, what we're going to eat with the, uh, the Vino Verde. So we've got a lot to cover. I want to jump into some of the current events that have been happening I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been hearing all about these wines that are aged under the sea, like Little Mermaid style. Um, and it sounds like, th- like, and I've never seen them in real person. Like I, I've just always heard of th- that some people are doing this. It turns out that the the FDA has finally approved the very first wine that has been aged under the Adriatic uh, for for sale. So we'll actually be able to buy these wines that have been aged under the sea. Um, thanks to a lot of, of research and a lot of work done by this one particular importer and producer, um, I think from Croatia. But uh, what's, to me, what's really interesting is they talk about the fact that, you know, these, so essentially what's happening, and Vanessa, I'd love for you to dig into this a little bit, but they're, they're taking these bottled wines and they're putting them in cages and they're aging them a hundred feet under the sea, literally in the water, they're growing barnacles and these wines are being aged for a year or two. Right. And so they're saying that, you know, it's, it's under the water, you know, you've got like the, the motion of the water going. Um, I don't know. What do you, have you ever done any research on the actual benefits of aging wines under the sea? You know, no, because this is so such a sort of it's new <laughs> what <laughs> phenomenon that um no I I have you know I think we talked on a previous episode about a wine that actually had a little seawater added to yes. it yes but this is this different, is right? this is different <laughs> right so it's so this is what I'm trying to trying to sort out and maybe we just need to try one of these bottles is mm. it sounds like one of the major benefits is just for the aging process right it's cool it's dark. Um, but I don't know, and I guess you can add on that this sort of gentle wave, the motion they're saying is good for this. But I mean, I don't know how different that would be than just putting your wine, you know, in a cave like we like we mm-hmm. always have <laughs> mm-hmm. and keeping it in a cool, dark, humid place. It seems like you could probably do this in a much more simple fashion. But hey, yeah. they're getting a lot of attention. I mean, I want to try one, so it's working. <laughs> I definitely want to try it. I'd be really interested. And I think there was an experiment that they did where they had aged wines in space because I think also along the same lines, there is the the pressure component, right? And underwater pressure allegedly intensifies aging. For wine to age, there has to be oxygen exchange, right? It's not just like a swooshing of like, this is why we age in cork, which is porous. And correct me if I'm wrong here, right? Like there has to be some level of oxygen exchange. Small. Small, Small like amount. not a lot, yes. but like a small yeah. amount. Um, is that happening still if it's underwater? It can't be. It, right? yeah, it no, it it can't be. I mean, I think you know, like they have the benefit of the stable temperature, the humidity, all those other things, but but no, I and then I guess with the barnacles and what does that do? <laughs> I have no idea. Can it's, I just tell you that I ate barnacles in no. Portugal? How were yes. they? Per se base delicious kind of between like a clam and like a like a snail really like looks like a dinosaur claw and terrifying but anyway I ate barnacles that's a thing apparently in like Spain and Portugal okay. hmm. um but anyway yeah I don't know what the barnacle thing is I I don't know to me like it seems like a lot of work and a lot of hoops to jump through to age wine under the sea 
Yes. And if you re- and we'll link all these articles as we always do in the in the description, but they had to get this approved by the FDA. They had to do a ton of like legislative work to make that happen, which can't be inexpensive. And I like I just wonder like what the real upside is and like is this really worth well, doing? And is it good for the ocean? I mean, what if everyone also started that. doing this? <laughs> right. Right. Um I mean, I guess to some degree you could you could claim that it's maybe more sustainable because, you know, maybe you're not running Using electricity um, to exactly. stay cool. Okay, that exactly. is something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, you still have like the manpower and like, you know, what like how does that impact the environment under the ocean? Like there's so much that we don't understand. Uh, I think mostly we don't understand under the water. And I'm certainly not a scientist, so I'm not going to dig into that. But I don't know. It feels like there's a lot of variables at play, like unnecessary variables at play. And like, while I'm yeah. not, well, I'm not not a fan. I'm also just like, why? Like, I what mean, is the point of this? I don't want. I I'm gonna just say I'm a bit skeptical that it isn't really more like a marketing exercise. Because look, we're talking about it, right? They made they made headlines, and it's on top of mind for people. So who knows? Again, I will withhold full judgment until I actually get to try one of these wines. But it just seems like a bit of a stunt, in my opinion. Agreed. Um, yes, you're right. They did make it onto the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast, so they've arrived. Congratulations. <laughs> Next up on the agenda, we had a we had a lot to talk about this week. Uh, and ironically, I'm actually sitting here in Philadelphia. Uh, this is from the Philadelphia Inquirer. This is uh, an article on Cabernet Blanc. Have you heard of Cabernet Blanc? We've we've got Cabernet Franc, we've got Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Cabernet Pfeffer. If you want to get really geeky, and and Cabernet Franc, is, uh, Cabernet Blanc, is now in the mix. Uh, have you heard of it? Are you familiar? I heard about it only when I read this article. This is, I think, fairly new. This was like a a grape that was bred by Swiss breeders that combines, I think, Cabernet Sauvignon and a grape called Regent. Okay. And Regent is? It's a grape. It has both Vitis vinifera and Vitis labrusca, so both kind of European and American pedigree Mm. as part of it. But I I personally have never had a wine made from it, so I I don't know Mm. what it tastes like. But- I think what was interesting about this is, okay, so it is making a white wine. They have bred these two grapes, which are red, to be Mm -hmm. a white grape, Mm -hmm. if I'm understanding this correctly. Um, But also I think part of what they're saying is it's more resistant to fungal diseases in the vineyard, so potentially Mm. better for um, sustainable viticulture. What Mm. it tastes like, I don't know. I think they described it as kind of a cross between Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc. So I imagine it's dry and very aromatic, but... I don't know. Do you want to try one of these? Of course. I want to try everything. Um, mm-hmm. I, th- <laughs> I think it calls into question a few things. I think one is this idea of hybrid grapes, which we have traditionally sort of like poo-pooed in the wine world, right? Like it's like Vitis vinifera or nothing. But I think to your point, what we're seeing – and this is, this is the bottling that they're talking about is actually coming out of France. But we're seeing a ton of hybrid varieties in uh, meaning like these these cross varieties between Vitis Lambrusca and Vitis Vinifera, we're seeing them a lot in the United States and states that are not California, Oregon, uh, Washington, you know, places that we're not traditionally used to seeing Vitis Vinifera varieties. So I think it's interesting from the standpoint that we could potentially see more hybrid varieties like this getting a little bit more attention and, you know, the fact that they potentially would be more fungal resistant and therefore wouldn't potentially need this, the sprays, uh, mm-hmm. that some of these other varieties might need. Um, I would definitely try it. So like I said, this article came out in the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is of course in 
Pennsylvania, not exactly a state known <laughs> for uh, the best selection of wines. Something I do hope to change in my lifetime. I really, I hope to like have an impact on this making wine a little bit more accessible in this state, uh, being from here. Um, what I think is really interesting is that you can actually buy this wine in the in, from the PLCB in the state stores in Pennsylvania. So like so many things that you can't get, but like this this particular <laughs> wine, the PLCB was like, let's bring Cabernet Blanc in. Like that sounds like a great idea. Like no one will ever have heard of it. And I'm sure we'll have a million questions, but like let's bring it in because <laughs> like all these wines have to be approved by the board. Like these wow. are all purchased by the state and then they're distributed amongst the stores. Um, it's a wild process in Pennsylvania and like really kind of like screws the consumer and the retailer in the end or the restaurant in the end. Um, but I just think it's so funny that like of all the things I could have chosen to bring in, they're like Cabernet Blanc. That's what we're going to do. It sounds to me like someone had a little too many glasses of wine at lunch and yep, came babe. back and that <laughs> stamp just sort of fell on the wrong piece of paper. <laughs> Either that or there's some like insider trading happening. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to get like sued for slander over here, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. It just seems so funny that like, I, in, like in all your buying days, Vanessa, have you ever been tempted by like a cabernet, like something like a cabernet blanc? You're like, you know what I think might really sell a wine access cabernet blanc. Um, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not. God bless the PLCB. All right. Well, it is available for $13.99. It's 11.5% alcohol, which signals to me that there's probably a little sweetness there. Um, so if you want to seek it out. Uh, oh, it's on sale uh, right now. So it's it's regularly $15.99. Um, <laughs> not that we're trying to promote buying from the PLCB. Uh, I'm certainly not. What else do we want to talk about? I think since we're talking about uh, Portugal today, friends at Graham's, I was with the Simington family as you were, uh, Simington's own own Graham's. They released a limited edition bicentenary collection to mark a historic milestone. Um, this is a really special project that they did that uh, is comprised of six single harvest tawny ports, six classic vintage ports, including wines from the heralded 6394 and 2011 vintage. Um, and they've been aged in Graham's cellars in in the Gaia region which did you get to did you get into like Porto to see Gaia no I did okay not. so I if anyone is visiting Porto or like that region in general it is well worth going to Gaia and like I, I don't want to like spoil everything but like Gaia is where everything is aged so traditionally what would happen is they would they would make the wines in the region of the Douro they would vinify them and then they would they would bring them down by ship to the region of Gaia which isn't that far, you know, it's, it's just more, it's more coastal. Um, and so they would age everything there. And so that's what's happening here. So when they say it's aged in their cellars, that's what they're talking about. Um, it sounds delicious. And I'm a big fan of what Graham's does. The only thing I have to say is port is already a little bit complicated. I feel like this adds another layer of layer of complexity that I didn't necessarily want in my life. Um, but I also appreciate it. So like, I'm kind of, I feel both ways about it. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here. Doesn't it actually come with a piece of furniture? Like you're not just buying the wine, you're buying oh, actual, the cabinet yes. that yes. holds oh, it. Thank you. Yes. So, and glass, <laughs> and I think glasses come with it as yes. well, wine glasses and maybe some other wine accessories. So I guess my question is, do they expect people to actually drink these or are you buying it just to kind of have it as a display showpiece? Because I guess you could just fill it with new bottles, but once you, you know, what you sort of ruin the, the overall value of the set, once you take one out and now you have this sort of like missing tooth in your cabinet, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yes, one that that one front tooth is missing once you drink the sixty three, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean it is. It's super beautiful, and the picture is online. It's a yeah. I mean it's it's this rare Santos rosewood uh, made cabinet um, by made by a Portuguese um, Portuguese craftsman. Um, comes with a hand blown decanter. Jancis Robinson's glasses are in there. Uh, a Durand is in there. So you, it's kind of, you know what? Maybe I take back what I said. Maybe it actually doesn't add a layer of complexity. I think actually is what it what it does is maybe makes it easier to consume pork. Because they're giving you basically everything. everything that you could ever possibly need to like get your port on, open it, drink it, and like live your best life in your whatever room you're going to place this very beautiful cabinet in. So yeah, I think if you can afford it, does it say the price in here, by the way? Mm, I didn't see that. I didn't either. I can't imagine it's inexpensive though, right? Can't be. It's got to yeah. be limited edition. So, yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I that the decor. It's a beautiful cabinet. It doesn't really yeah. fit with my mid-century modern vibe I've got going on at home. But I would drink those <laughs> wines for sure. Would your best day in life be a mid-century modern cabinet with like a whole bunch of champagne vintages <laughs> stored in there? You know me so well. <laughs> <laughs> Now that I can get on board with. No, I think it's cool. And I, you know, I love that for, you know, port is one of those things that uh, gets overlooked a little too often. And I love that like Grams is just trying to make it fun and enjoyable. And um, I'm sure this is not accessible in price, but accessible in terms of how you consume it uh, is lovely. So kudos to them. I don't know. I don't think that I'm going to be able to afford it, but if anyone out there is is buying it, please do Instagram it and tag us so we can see it in real life. Last but not least, Jason Woodbridge. What the oh, heck is going on? <laughs> my gosh. This – you can't make this up. No. I mean this – okay. So let me get this right. So he's in a dispute with Napa County because he wants to replant after the fire. Mm-hmm. But uh, he cleared some trees – is mm-hmm. this right? And then mm-hmm. the county is upset with him, but he's saying the trees were dead because the fire killed them. I didn't kill the trees. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So Jason Woodbridge. So for those of you who are like, who the heck's Jason Woodbridge? Why do we care about this? Jason Woodbridge, founder winemaker of 100 Acre, right? Like one of the most popular 100 point wines in Napa Valley. Very expensive. And right now they are questioning what the verb to plant actually means. Like if, if anything has ever sounded more like legalese to you, like th- we're questioning what to plant means. I'm just going to read this because I, I, I think this is too complicated for me to try to summarize. A successful high-end winemaker filed an interesting lawsuit against Napa County last week claiming that it didn't have the right to stop him from installing a vineyard in a hillside because he didn't move any earth to do it. So he claims that because no no earth was harmed, he didn't move anything, he was in the right to do this. This is a very complicated lawsuit, and it's complicated for a lot of reasons. And I'm sure being in, in Napa Valley, you've heard some of the whispers or not so soft whispers of wineries and winemakers uh, talking about the aftermath of these fires and the level of bureaucracy and red tape they have to go through to get themselves back into wine production mode again. And what I'm hearing is that, all right, so these fires come through, they take out your vineyard, they take out your winery, you just can't rebuild and can't just replant. There's a lot of things that have to happen, including permitting for trees to be removed, which can be extraordinarily expensive. Um, I talked to a winemaker over on Spring Mountain 
who said it was going to cost him in the millions to remove dead trees, not just because it was, you know, the labor, but because of the bureaucracy that he was going to have to go through to make sure that he wasn't disturbing these burned dead trees to make sure that he wasn't disturbing the environment. Not only that, but like trying to get these wineries, uh, trying to get insurance after the fires have come through, trying to get the permitting to rebuild. And then also, I think we, we talked a little bit about this is like, you can't like, then you have to have like the proper roads so that the the fire truck can come in. Like there's so many things that have to happen post fire. Like you've already dealt with the, you know, the this intense agony of of you know what happens when your your life's work is destroyed. And then after that, trying to go through California red tape to like get yourself to a place where you're making money again is insane. And we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to make it happen. So I, you know, as much as I think Jason Woodbridge is a, a bit of a character in in California and definitely not without what I will call some questionable behavior, I do think it's important that he kind of steps up and and says, you know, fine, we, you know, we definitely don't want to disturb the earth. We definitely want to be sustainable and we definitely want to be mindful about what we're doing. But also like there has to be some give and take here. I, what like what do you think about all this? I I agree. I mean, I've talked like you have to to many people, vineyard owners, but people you know we lost resorts have burned down here, and yeah. and they're all just sort of stuck in this legal uh, maelstrom of jumping through hoops, and it's really sad. You know, I think if we could move quickly, we we would, and but everyone's a little bit um, hamstrung by all this like red tape to your to your point, and also then there's not an unlimited amount of people that can go and do these inspections and it takes a lot of time and then you have to file it and then you have to wait for it to be reviewed. So it's really, it's really, um, it's really sad. The other piece of this article that I think is very interesting because there's that part of the lawsuit, but then it's almost like reminds me of like, what is the definition of is or do you remember this whole thing? I was like, I was like, what is it? What is the, uh, what was the case? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Which is, yeah, because he's saying that he didn't plant the vines. Um, he exposed Correct. them to the earth because he didn't plant them in a pot. So that right. what he did was indeed not planting a vineyard. He just exposed the vines to the earth. What do you think about that? I mean, I'm not a viticulturist. I'm, I can't. I can't weigh into like what that actually means. But I think he makes a point in saying like, all right, where do we draw the line? Like, if you're not disturbing the earth genuinely like if if we're not doing any harm then what is the actual problem yeah i exactly and 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 maybe we should also mention for anyone that isn't aware that in napa valley there are very strict agricultural um laws about where you can plant um and hillsides in particular are are, you know becoming it's basically impossible at this point if you haven't already have one planted to plant a new hillside vineyard so i think that's part of why this is has been become such an issue Yeah. Well, and the unfortunate part of all of this is that the reality is the only people, I mean, once this all gets taken care of, but like when we're talking about um, price of wine in Napa Valley, there's a big reason why wines are so expensive. And it really does come down to the fact that like, obviously we want to protect the land. We've been under the Ag Preserve since 1968. It's important, but we also have to let people do business, right? Like we also have to continue growing grapes and making wine and doing all those things. So like, 
I get that the red tape has to be in place, but I also, I feel like there has to be some give and take here. Like it just, it just feels so silly that, you know, they're going to be wrapped up in crazy legal fees and then who's that going to get passed off to? It's going to be in the end, the consumer. Um, and then, you know, wine gets more and more expensive and difficult to consume um, and drink. And not that I think Jason Woodbridge really cares about how much his wine is because it's pretty expensive as is. Um, so, you know, a few dollars here and there. But like that does trickle down. Like if you're a small producer that like that lost their shirt in the fire, that does trickle down to the consumer in the end. Um, so I don't know. I'm not a lawyer and I'm certainly not going to Kim Kardashian my way into it and becoming a lawyer. So I'm just going to sit back and watch. But I do have an opinion uh, in that I think that I think business has to continue and that we have to find a middle ground to make that happen while still protecting the land and the people that inhabit it. So that's all I'll say until we get to Portugal. <laughs> First and foremost, we've got to we got to thank our people for listening to our podcast. Um, we are still getting some really wonderful reviews from you guys, and we love hearing from you. So if you're listening to this on any platform, please be sure to like, subscribe, review. Um, reviews really help. I know we we talk about that a lot, but reviews are really helpful. Not not only you know our podcast succeeding, but also in helping other people to find us. So if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. And this week, as always, we will read a review from one of you who left one. So thank you. So if you want to be one of the lucky people we re- read a review of, please go ahead and do that. This one is from Jason Standhope, who said, "Exciting show about wine. This podcast is a great mix of the personal side of wine and learning more about the technical side." of wine. Very entertaining. Hey, Vanessa, we're entertaining. That's exciting. (gasps) Wow. Wow. (laughs) I'm really glad to hear that because otherwise (laughs) we're just, we're just, what are we doing? We're just entertaining ourselves. We're just entertaining ourselves and and drinking wine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On that note, uh, speaking of entertaining, if you want to watch us entertain you instead of just listen we are on youtube it's really fun to watch and in fact i've loved seeing you guys instagram some of your 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 watch parties your wine wednesdays with your wine club uh wines hanging out with me and vanessa which is really cool to see so if you want to watch us you can do that on youtube and then also on the wine club this podcast has a wine club which means you can drink with us alongside us before us after us however you want to do it there the wines are available Um, and Vanessa and I pick them and it's a very intense process that we go through. We have to sit and drink a lot of wines to figure out what we're going to do, but somebody has got to do it. Um, so, you know, if you want to be part of that process, join our wine club, have a little fun with us. And that's what we're going to do in just a second. So if you haven't grabbed your wine already, go ahead and do that. And we'll be back in just a second. All right, let's talk all things Portugal and wine. This is such an exciting region, and we this is not our first time having a Portuguese wine on the show. We've had the Continental Ball that we did with Brooke Kreischer. We did a port-style wine that was not from Portugal um, earlier with another guest. I think it was actually with, um, with Peter Billingsley. And this is the first time that we're really spending time on this region and diving into it. And it's been such an interesting region for me to not only discover pre-Portugal, um, but then now after being there, I really have a, a newfound appreciation. But I want to jump into port, which comes from Porto in Portugal. And I, I'm not going to admit to you how late in life I realized that correlation. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> but we're I want to jump into port and what port is, where it comes from. And if you've never had port before, you've probably seen it like on a wine list somewhere. Usually it's in the dessert section, but it's always going to be under a category called fortified wine. Um, and fortified wine, Vanessa, I'd love for you to sort of break down what fortified wine is as a category before we get into what how it's made in the region of Portugal. Yeah, uh, for sure. So fortified wine essentially is a wine that has had spirit added. So when we talk about, you know, most wines that you drink at the table, they're fermented, um, you know, to dryness or some version of dryness. Um, but in this case, spirit is added. And in the case of something like port, it actually arrests or stops the fermentation before the yeast have consumed all the sugar. So what you're left with is a, a wine that has a lot of sweetness, um, but also has a higher level of alcohol than you would find in a in a table wine. So when we're talking about port, we're usually talking about, you know, somewhere around 19% um, ABV, 20 in some cases. Um, but whereas, you know, for a table wine, sort of what's the highest you've ever seen? Probably around 16%. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So, um, but I think it's, um, there's so much to talk about in terms of the, the method of production there. Um, yes. So, you know, the, the idea, and again, we have some dry wines that we're going to taste today, but for actual port, sweet style fortified wine, um, you, what you're really trying to do is get as much extraction out of the grapes very quickly, yes. but very gently. So if you've ever seen, you know, uh, videos of people, you know, stomping grapes or something with their feet, this is an actual thing that yes. still ha actually still happens. There are many mechanical ways to do this now in port production. But the reason why they did that is they were trying to get as much sort of extract and color out of the skins without breaking the seeds, which you can get sort of bitter tannins. Mm -hmm. astringency out of it and sort of they realize that the human foot is the is the right balance of being able to get that extraction but not be too rough and um they do these in these sort of uh they're called lagares or sort of these low tanks and the, it's they're quite like a party little, little mini swimming pools right exactly like exactly or something <laughs> Exactly. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's quite a party. They sing, they dance, uh, you know, there's usually music and, but what happens is this is a short process. So it's only like a day or two and then they, mm -hmm. they add the spirit. And so it stops the fermentation because the spirit, um, kills the yeast at that yes. point. So, yeah. uh, so yeah, fortified wine, uh, probably Portugal is probably most famous for port, right? Which is the fortified wine. And, but there's many different wines that come out of Portugal, not just port. I think that it's probably one of the most interesting though. And so I want to start there before we dive into our dry wines and into the other regions. So if you want to look at Portugal as a whole, as a country and kind of break it down into sub-regions, you've got Porto, which is where port comes from, you know, just like the region of Champagne in order to call it port, it has to come from the region of Porto um, in the Douro Valley. Uh, you've also got uh, Vino Verde, which is in the Minho region, and that's where all your kind of crispy whites are going to come from. And then you also have Alentejo, which is going to be down closer to Lisbon. And there's lots of grape growing that's happening all throughout Portugal, but those are the three primary regions that we're going to focus on today. Um, and then we could also talk about Madeira, which is part of Portugal, but it's, you know, it's these little islands kind of off the coast of Portugal. Um, you know, really interesting process. We could probably spend an entire episode just on Madeira. Uh, but I think for the purposes of this episode, we'll just focus on like the mainland grape growing. Um, so port is coming from Portugal, coming from the region of Porto in the Douro Valley. 
And as you said, Vanessa, these this is a really interesting process when it comes to fermenting. But when it comes to actually growing these grapes, it's actually a very normal process in some ways, right? So we talked earlier that you've got the Douro River that's coming in and kind of winding all the way through the region, which is further broken down into a few subregions. And the grapes grow on these crazy hillsides that really kind of look, If you and you should look at pictures of this, and if you're watching on YouTube, I'll flash some photos from my trip. But these grapes grow all the way down basically to the, to the edge of the water, um, and they're all terraced because we're talking about, you know, 30 to 40 degree slopes. There's really no other way you could do it. So you see, as you mentioned earlier, these stone walls that kind of keep everything up. Um, what was really interesting was to watch harvest. I mean, these are crazy hillsides and these guys are doing crazy long days work. But as I said, it's still a very normal process and that the grapes are not harvested late. It's not like, you know, making salt turn or a late harvest Riesling or something like that. These grapes are harvested as you would any other dry wine. They're harvested, you know, around 23 to 26 degrees bricks, although they don't really use bricks as a measurement there of sweetness. The grapes come in, they're destemmed, And then from there, that's when things sort of change a little bit. And when we're talking about grapes coming from this region, we're talking about a few predominant ones, Tariga Nacional, which I don't know if you were there um, that they mentioned. Tariga Nacional is probably one of the closest in terms of flavor and texture profile to Cabernet Sauvignon. And if you've ever had just a straight Tariga Nacional, nothing blended into it, it does taste quite a bit like Cabernet Sauvignon. It's very inky. It's plushy. There's really great berry flavor to it. You've got Tariga Franca, which is sort of like they equate it to Cabernet Franc. Tinta Roish and then Tinta Barocca are the um, are the predominant grapes that you're going to find not only in port wine, but in the region in the Douro Valley to make still wines as well. Um as you said, these grapes are brought in and uh, it's a really fun process to watch because as you said, these these they're brought into these ligaris. And what I never realized, and I thought this is so interesting, um, you know, the reason that they they really only have 24 to 48 hours is fermentation kicks off once you start breaking those skins. So it's kind of like a race to get as much extraction as they possibly can um, before all of that sugar gets converted to alcohol. So they're going to bring that sugar down to about half. And then, as you said, they're going to rest it with brandy, um, which is, you know, neutral grape spirit. And then that wine is going to age. Now from there, and as if anybody's seen port on a, on a wine list, from there, you've probably noticed that there's not just, it doesn't just say port, right? It probably says tawny port or ruby port or vintage port. And so there's all these different styles of port that can be made after that initial process. And that all happens in the aging process. Now, I did hint before that the region of Gaia is a really important one when it comes to making port. And that's because in this region, in in the Douro Valley, it's very hot it's very dry. They actually don't get a ton of water, even though they're on the river there. It's it's actually a very dry place. Um, and so what happens, and there's also no space, right? You're on hillsides. There's no there's nowhere to do these things. So they vinify everything there. And then traditionally what would happen is they'd put it in barrels and then they'd ship it on down the river, down to the region of Gaia, which sits on the opposite side of Porto. And that's where you're going to find all of the porthouses, just kind of like lining the side of the river. It's really, really cool to see. And when you go inside and you visit these places, you'll see not a new barrel in sight. 
not one. In fact, they are quite old. Um, and that was a really interesting thing for me because I, I just, it never occurred to me that like these wines were not aged in new Oak. In fact, um, I, you said you, you didn't get out there, but so you probably didn't see this. They have, uh, like barrel fixers on site. So they've had these barrels for, you know, anywhere from 40 to a hundred years. And so there's these guys that are, are full-time staff that go around to all the barrels and they look at these barrels and they decide, you know, if they need, maybe need to fix a few things here, but they try to keep these barrels for as long as they can. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a big part of the aging process. But I want to talk a little bit about Ruby versus Tawny versus Vintage. And uh, maybe Vanessa, you can jump into like what the difference is in terms of aging and what that looks mm-hmm. like for some of these different styles. Yeah, totally. No, and I think often um, they're referred to as bottle aged or cask aged, but I think mm. that's a little bit confusing sometimes to people because even what we the bottle aged are aged in cask for a period of time. So I often just like to say red port or tawny port. Mm. Um, okay. But red port, or what you might hear as tawny port, are, are, are wines that are aged for a shorter amount of time in cask before they're bottled. Uh, and there are different level quality levels within there. So like just sort of basic ruby is going to be aged for a very short time before it's bottled. That's kind of the most affordable, not meant to you know put in your cellar for a long amount of time. Um, Ruby Reserve aged for a little longer in cask before it's bottled three to four years. And and I'll, I'll just pause for one second to say the reason why they age these wines in cask is they're really fiery. Because if you think about mm. that spirit that was added. That's a good point it needs a little time to to mellow out. So this is why in the quality level, they go up the longer that these um, red ports are aged in cask. Um, late bottled vintage is a red port or a bottle aged port that's um, bottled after four to six years in cask. I think this is a great value because mm. these are ready to drink when you buy them. Whereas yes. vintage port, you actually are not meant to yes. open these for a long amount of time. Yes. So vintage board is actually aged for less than than late bottled vintage um, and you're meant to put it down. And this is why often I think, um, Amanda, birth years are a big thing, right? Yes. People buy the birth year for their children and they put it away for many, many years and then you can open it, you know, 21 years later or later <laughs> yeah. with your kids. Um, yeah. So that's that's the, the you know, red port. And then tawny port is cask aged for a much, much longer time and it is a different color. So red ports, you know, as they old, as they age, they will get sort of lighter in color, but they really are red. They're dark, they're inky, um, they're, you know, opaque. Tawny port is that more brownish color and you'll hear things like 20 year 30 year 40 year tawny ports that is not an actual age of the wine that's an indication of the average age because younger wines are blended into these casks so it's an average age of the wines that you find there but those tend to be you don't need to age tawny ports you can drink them as you buy them and they're just sort of softer more mellow you don't get that sort of fiery tannic nature that you do from from red port tawny i think for me is like is my favorite best value and for a few reasons i think one of the reasons um you may have said it, but maybe i missed it the other thing about tawny is like it's intentionally oxidized right so they're not topping up these barrels they're just kind of letting them go and so they're exposed to oxygen to sort of accelerate that aging process, which means, as you said, once you buy it, it's ready to drink. But then also once you open it, because it's already been exposed to oxygen and it's already been intentionally oxidized, that bottle will stay good open in your fridge for like six months. 
Like you can genuinely keep tawny port in your fridge for like a very long time without it really going anywhere. So for me, that makes it the better value because I don't know about you, but like after dinner and I just want like something a little bit sweet, a, a nice like small glass of tawny port. And we should talk about the, the pore sizes of these wines probably. Um, a nice glass of tawny port is a really great way to have like dessert without having dessert. It's, you know, just have like a few ounces. Um, we mentioned earlier that these are much more alcoholic than your standard table wines. So anywhere from like 19 to 21%, somewhere in there, which means you probably shouldn't have like a full five to six ounce pour. Literally no one will judge you if you do. Um, but you should not be surprised if in a restaurant you get a much smaller glass, they've got port glasses that will be about two to three ounces. Uh, and that's just, you know, one that they're very sweet. Um, if they're made well, they're very, very balanced. So it's not like you're drinking syrup. They actually still, because these grapes are harvested as you would any other grape for a dry wine, they have really great acidity. So they're picking not only for ripeness, but they're also picking for acid because they know that because there's going to be such a high amount of sugar, you need acid to balance. So these aren't flabby wines. They're not syrupy wines. Um, they are certainly sweet wines, but they are balanced wines. Uh, so for me, a tawny port is kind of where it's at. In terms of pairing these wines, um, you can have a lot of fun. And I think, you know, we talk about the fact that sweet wines should be paired with sweet foods, right? So your wine should be as sweet or sweeter than the food that you're pairing it with, which means if you got a brownie, you probably don't want to do it with a dry wine because it's going to make that brownie taste a little weird. But you could pair it with something like a ruby port because I really like chocolate and ruby port together. Those are really delicious pairings. So if you're someone that's like chocolate and cab, you know, cab cabernet isn't always the best pairing for, for chocolate because it's dry. But Ruby Port to me always kind of felt like if Cabernet, like Napa Cab, had like a ton of sugar in it, that's kind of what Ruby tastes like. It's really juicy and it's sweet and it's it's lush. Um, and that's really just delicious with all your chocolate things. So anything in that red category is great with chocolate. When it comes to vintage, which is still part of that red wine ca category, I like to move to the cheese side of uh, dessert with that because I think there's just a little bit more acidity that you find in the vintage ports. Um there's a bit more balance. And so I like that with cheese. Remember, cheese, just like uh, sweet stuff, cheese has an incredible amount of acidity and you want your acids to match. So you need your wine to be as high or higher in acidity when it comes to uh, to pairing. And cheese has a lot of acidity, as I said. And then when it comes to tawny port, this is my favorite. If, and if you happen, did you, when you were in, in uh, Portugal, did you have uh, Pestel de Nata? No, no, no. Tell no? me. No. Oh, man. Okay. So I felt I had one of these like at least once a day. So pastel de nata is like the signature breakfast, lunch, dessert, uh, kind of have it anytime you found, you find them pretty much at anywhere you get coffee or there's even like entire like, uh, bakeries dedicated, uh, dedicated to making a pastel. So it's pastel. It looks like pastel de nata. It's, you know, all the S's in Portuguese are ish. So it's pastel de nata. If it's plural, it's pastel. Um, it's basically like a little mini creme brulee in like a, um, like a puff pastry almost. And so, but they bake them at a really, they don't, they don't like flambe them like creme brulee. They bake them at a super high temperature. So it's kind of like creamy and custardy in the center and then just slightly burnt on top. So you get this sort of like caramely vanilla nuttiness. And that's what you want to do with tawny port. Tawny port with anything vanilla, nutty, caramely, custardy, those things. Oh my God. Like if your mouth isn't watering right now, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> 
that is like that is one of like God's great gifts to us in the food and wine pairing world. Like truly delicious pairing. So um, if you've got a creme brulee or like a caramelly dessert or you know flan in your future, grab a bottle of tiny port. We should talk about the prices of these wines. Speaking of which, because uh, as you mentioned, great birth year wines because there's so much value there, and these wines age forever. Um, so what, I mean, you've been in retail for a long time, so you probably have a better gauge on like where you should kind of be looking in terms of price for some of these bottles. You know, for Ruby, basic Ruby, you can buy it for like, you know, in the $20 range there, they can be quite affordable, you know, late bottled vintage, maybe, you know, forties, maybe 50, depending on the producer vintage, you're going to look you know, upwards towards a hundred bucks, you know, ish or more. Um, mm-hmm. but still when you think about something that can age that long, that's actually quite a value. Um, it's huge value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and something else, if uh, I, I think is so fascinating while we're still talking about port is just a little bit of the history, which I think is so interesting for so many wine regions that there's usually part necessity and part politics that have led to a lot of a lot of things so you know the reason why port sort of became popular originally was was there was a a a conflict between england and france and it was in the 17th century and and england banned um the importer sale of french wines and so they they went to portugal uh and i think they still have the longest running treaty in the world i think this is still in place that it's the treaty of methuen um, mm. and so, so that they could freely trade. Um, but this was also the time of great exploration and this was happening on ships and what mm. they really, and they always wanted to take alcohol, um, on the ships. Right. But what Naturally. they realized, who doesn't, who doesn't want to do a booze cruise in the exactly. 1400s? <laughs> exactly. Um, and what they realized is that when wine was fortified with spirit, it was more stable and could last long and could hold up on these long, ocean trips with, you know, lots of different variations of temperature because it's just more sturdy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think to your point, uh, these wines can age for a very long time. Now we had mentioned Ruby, you know, you don't, you don't want to age a Ruby, but we're talking about vintage port. I mean, those can age for 50 years, a hundred years. I mean, they can go a very, very long time because of the sugar, which is a preservative, because of the fortification with the with the uh, with the brandy, these wines have a very very long shelf life and are delicious with age. I mean, truly, some of the most beautiful wines in the world. Port is wildly underrated, and I just like for the life of me cannot understand why it hasn't had the the popularity um, in in current days that it should. It was interesting when I was there. So I was with the Symington family. They own um, Grams and Dow's and Coburn's. It's pronounced Coburn's, not Cockburn's. Um, If you see it, now you know. Uh, It was funny. We actually had like a fun conversation about that. But um, anyway, I was talking to to Rupert Symington. He said, you know, back in the 70s, Port and Bordeaux were the same price. First growth Bordeaux, which you think about it now, like you can't get a first growth Bordeaux for less than what, 500 bucks a bottle. Yeah. But you can get a bottle of vintage port for like a hundred. That's an insane value. Uh, and when you look at what goes into making these wines and the ageability and the consistency of them, um, really, really impressive. And oh, one thing that we didn't mention that uh, vintage port is not made in every vintage. In That's fact, right. um, 
only about three to four per decade that are that are declared. And it's uh, it's actually a really interesting process that they have to go through in order. Por- Portugal, like a lot of European countries, uh, very particular about their name brand, right? So if you're gonna put the if you're gonna put their country on there, it needs to represent them properly. So there's a there's actually a government organization that that tastes the wines and will allow you or not allow you to declare a vintage. Um, so if you're Grams and you decide you want to declare the, the 2022 vintage, um, you can do that. And a lot of times the port houses will all kind of come together and decide to declare a vintage. But if you wanted to declare a vintage outside of uh, you know, a declared vintage, you do either way, you have to go get that approved. And sometimes they approve it, sometimes they don't. Um, one other thing, and not to complicate things too much, but I, I don't know, uh, I'm sure you spend a little time at some of these like little quintas, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the little wineries, right? I didn't know that they made single quinta ports mm-hmm. until I went there. And I think these are some of the best value too, because these you're getting, you know, where else in the world can you go and get a single vineyard wine that's less expensive than a blended wine? Does that make sense to you? <laughs> we had a whole conversation about it. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a lot how of are things. these less ex- how are these less expensive? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you can get a, a vintage single, so made from a specific vintage, which is often outside of the declared vintages, single quinta, single vineyard port for like 60 to 70% of like what the declared vintage of like all the combined. So fascinating to me. So there you might see those out and about. I think they're you know smaller production, but um I thought that was really interesting. Um, anything else that we need? I mean, I could talk for like days about port, but we do have a couple dry wines in front of us and specifically one that's in the wine club. And I don't want to keep everyone waiting, but if there's anything else we should add, we should, I we should add it now. There's just one thing about service, which can be kind of fun, is to see um, port tongs being used <gasps> yes. and why you might use this. Did you, did you see that while you were there? You know, I didn't. Um, we – it was a little bit more uh, – well, maybe I didn't see it. So the the ports just always happen to arrive in front of me. So they never did port tongue <laughs> service. I need to travel with you. Um, yes. So so these port tongs, they're literally these tongs, and they heat them over a flame until they are literally red hot. And what they yes. do is they put them around the neck of the bottle, and it basically c- completely cleanly takes off the neck of the bottle with the cork in it. And and the reason why you might want to do that is in some cases, this is this is usually done, unless it's just being done for show, is usually done on, on very older ports. And that's because yeah. sometimes the, the cork is very delicate. If you try to put a corkscrew or even an osso or a duran through it, it could crumble. And so with these older ports, they just don't even bother. Um, so it's a, re- it's a way to have, you know, a very clean wine without um, – uh, risking the cork, but also it's just really fun to watch. <laughs> it is really fun to watch. And a couple of restaurants, like so 11 Madison Park does it, uh, table side, not just for port, they'll do it for dry wines as well. Um, so yeah, so they'll, they'll score it on the neck. Uh, and I, I had never done it during service, like on when I was a SOM. Um, but they'll score it with these, with these tongues and then it, it's, it's thermodynamics. And like I said, I'm not a scientist, but it's thermodynamics. And then they brush it with a little bit of water and then the neck snaps off. A lot of times what they'll do is they'll filter it. I mean, there's no glass wine bottle glass doesn't shatter or like it doesn't it doesn't have glass shards like a lot of other glass it it breaks a little bit different but it's a clean break but oftentimes they'll filter it through I have a whole like um tutorial on my TikTok actually I'll post it on our Instagram so you can see it um 
it's really fun if you want to give it a try. And it's like, to me, it's like, it's more fun than saber. It's a lot more work than sabering, but it's more fun than sabering. And like I said, you can do it with pretty much any bottle. You just, you don't want to do it. You only want to do it with a bottle that has an actual cork in it. So you don't want to do it with a tawny port, which has a tea enclosure. So you'll see it's kind of like a spirits enclosure that you'd see like on a bourbon. Because uh, once you, once you, <laughs> once you put those heated tongs on that, that tea enclosure will just like pop right off. <laughs> um, so you want to make sure it hasn't, has an actual quirk, but it's really fun yep. to do. Unfortunately, no, we didn't see it at all in Portugal. Man, that was a bummer. A whole mm. month in Portugal, no portons. <laughs> um, let's talk a little about these dry wines. So yes. we have uh, one, of, one of the great examples of uh, a great dry red wine from Europe, really well-priced. We always like to talk about Spain as being great region for, for well-priced reds. I think Portugal... I think I think they're one step a step above Spain for me. Maybe not in terms of like, you know, they're not making Unico, right? So you don't have like create. Although you do, Crochea is great, um, which is a collaboration between Pratt's and Symington's. Um, but when we're talking about ten to twenty dollar red wines that are really delicious and really well made, I think Portugal is where it's at. I mean, there, it was so hard to find a wine that was expensive in Portugal, but they were all so good. Yeah. I mean, literally like every restaurant you go to, it's like five euro for a glass of wine and they were amazing. Um, and this is one of them. So if you're drinking with us, this is from the Douro region. So this is Valle de Cavallos, uh, Vinho Tinto, red wine. So, you know, red wine from the 2019 vintage. And as we talked about earlier, just like with port, um, this is actually made from the same grapes that port wine is made from. So the same fortified, uh, the fortified version of, of this wine. Um, so this is 50% Tariga Nacional, 20% Tariga Franca, 20% Tinto Rorish, which correct me if I'm wrong, is Tempranillo. Is that right? It's the same. Yes. It's the same variety Tempranillo. as Tempranillo. And 10% Tinto Barroca. So you're getting all five of the varieties in here. Um, it's really like bright and brambly. And like a little bit graphite like if you were to blind this, you might think it was a Cabernet blend, right? Yeah. Like I, just off off the nose. 100%. I think you described um, Triga Nacional really well earlier. It is very Cabernet-like, um, particularly it has that sort of structure to the tannin, yes. sort of very fine grain tannin. And I mean, absolutely. I used to, when I was studying for the um, tasting exam, I used to try to blind taste Doro red blends next to Bordeaux because, you know, you have to look, mm. these are riper, you know, they're a little bit more floral yes. blue fruit, but in some cases they're quite similar. Yeah. They're, I mean, for me, like as I'm tasting now, this has a little bit of a chill on it. I like my Portuguese reds, both fortified and non-fortified with a little chill. And in fact, if you're drinking port um, fortified wine, I would definitely have a little bit of a chill on that. So stick that in your fridge for at least like 15, 20 minutes. And I like this with a little chill. I think I like most of my reds with a chill, but I like this um, with a slight chill on it. Uh, it's it's pop and pour ready to go. You don't need to decant it. I mean, certainly a little air won't won't hurt. But I would treat this just like you would a Bordeaux blend or a Cabernet blend from Napa, right? So you're going to serve it in a Bordeaux glass. Mm -hmm. um, you might decant it. You're probably going to want steak or something, you know, red meat or something, you know, a big protein with it. Um, grilled vegetables, something with a char or something like that. Um, you want to treat this just like you would any other like Bordeaux blend, but this is coming from Portugal and it's different grapes. Um, 
as we said, you know, these grapes are coming from these crazy terraced vineyards. Uh, they're harvested, you know, as you would any other. Uh, so there's nothing weird about it. But you can't beat the price. And I like I feel like I'm screaming from the rooftops that Portuguese wine is like it's where it's at. And it's really, really, really hard to spend a lot of money on them because they're they're just and the quality is there. I think anytime we try to wine, we're like, You've got to be kidding me. That's like, it can't be that much money. I I agree with you, but I just have to, I'm just loving your enthusiasm today. (laughs) (laughs) You really are like, I mean, you're, everything you say is exactly correct, but it's awesome. It's probably what I sound like when I talk about champagne. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew Portugal would bring it out of me? I I really did fall in love with this place. I love the people. I love the culture. Um, I just, I really felt like being there gave me such a great appreciation mm-hmm. for winemaking again. And, you know, we're surrounded by such great winemakers and beautiful vineyards in Napa. But, it, you know, it was so fun seeing, you know, a different culture do their thing and seeing how they adapt to all of this, you know, similar or different challenges that you would any other wine region. Um, and the fact that they're making these wines for the price that they are and, to, and having such pride in what they're making um, is really cool. I think the other thing to note um, – the natural wine scene is really big in Portugal. And I think it's because, uh, you know, grapes are very inexpensive there. Um, they're, you know, so you're not, it's not like California where like, well, I'm getting $10,000 an acre or a, a ton to make Cabernet Sauvignon, right? And so I'm going to make the best Cabernet Sauvignon that I possibly can. I'm not going to make, you know, a natural wine that I'm going to sell for 20 bucks. I think Portugal is really interesting in that they can kind of do what they want because they're getting the same price regardless. So you're seeing a a huge amount of young winemakers really having some fun with the natural wine scene, um, playing around with different varieties. You know, there's, there's a ton of like, um, masal selection going on because we're like, we don't know what's planted. We're just going to make it. Uh, (laughs) so they're like, you know, they're taking over like their family vineyards and they're doing their thing. And so whether that's a pet nat or something else, um, Really, really delicious and really well made. I mean, we're talking clean style natural wines. Whether or not I'm ever going to see any of those again in the United States remains to be seen. Uh, But I do think it's worth noting that if you are visiting the region, definitely embrace the natural wine scene. Um, Try everything. I mean, it's so inexpensive when you consider what the United States charges for wine. Uh, so it's, I think it's really fun. And in fact, when we were in Lisbon, we went to this great natural wine bar that was recommended called Black Sheep. And, um, it, it was so cool. It was in the Bairro Alto re, uh, uh, subregions neighborhood. And they had like four seats at the bar. The place is packed. So there's no chance of getting a seat, but you kind of like wave your hand and they see you and they're super sweet and very friendly. And, you know, they have anywhere from like 50 to 70 wines open a night there and uh, all different. And you go up and they say, you know, you want rosé, you want white, you want red, you want sparkling. You say, I want red. And they pour you like five different tastes of these wines. There's like 20 people behind me. They do this for every single person and they're charging like six euro a glass. But the best part (laughs) is you, you know, you decide, I'm so excited. The best part. So you decide what glass you want, right? They give you a glass, great little shot Spiesel glass. And right on outside is this beautiful park and a pizza place right next door. And so you just go walk around with your glass of wine in Lisbon in the park, grab a grab a pizza and chill with like everybody else there on a Friday night. I'm telling you, it was a game changer. Like I, it blew my mind how cool it was that you could just like have this very civilized experience with wine in this beautiful place that was tree lined and gorgeous and 
eat some pizza while you're at it. So um, anyway, that's all to say, like, if you're visiting, uh, which I obviously recommend you should, um, definitely take advantage of that. And also shout out to, to Genuino and Porto, if you happen to be in Porto, another great natural wine bar that we spend way too much time at. Um, so that's our that's our Douro uh, red wine. But we also need to talk a little bit about Vinga Verde, uh, which you have or have not been to, Vanessa. I have not. I have not been. But you, I mean, you're obviously familiar with Vinga Verde, and I've talked about Vinga Verde before um, on my on my channels. And I love Vinga Verde uh, as a as a wine producing region because they produce really delicious, crisp, fresh white wines. They do produce some red wines. I'm not confident that's that's where they should be putting their money. But we'll just leave it at that. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, but they, they do produce really, really delicious, inexpensive white wines. And for the longest time, you know, you'll always see, for the most part, a little bit of CO2 in the bottling. And that stems from the fact that they were um, – the <laughs> fermentation was kind of uh, inadvertently happening again in the bottle. So you're getting like a like a, like a faux pet nat situation. A little mm-hmm. spritz action. But now they just add it at the end. But what's happening uh, in Vinga Verde is they're – you know, they're obviously known for these fresh, crisp whites, but they're also trying to promote a longer lasting, more um, age-worthy white wine, which is actually what we have here. So this is coming from a vineyard that I actually visited called Solero. Um, and this is 100% Alvarino. So the grapes, there's I think there's 45 varieties allowed uh, in Vinga Verde. But there's only a few that they really play with. Alvarino is probably the most expensive. Um, but do you want to guess like how much how much a ton of grapes costs oh, in Vinga Verde? Gosh. <laughs> uh five hundred dollars. Anywhere between five hundred and a thousand dollars a ton. Okay. With Alvarino being the most expensive. I mean, when you put that in perspective to Napa, I mean, I think you said ten thousand dollars a ton for Cabernet, but you know, if we're talking some of these vineyards, it's $50,000 in some not, cases. I was going to say, not if it's next summer. <laughs> not if it's next summer. So that's astounding. That's astounding. And yeah. can you can you um, clear something up for me? Because Vino Verde, mm-hmm. sort of like green wine, um, mm. you know, I heard originally they're like, oh, it's because these wines have a greenish tint. Then someone said, no, it's actually because they're bottled very young and fresh. So they're. It's actually neither. Um, ah. It's because the region is so green. Uh, so Vigneur Verde is, is named for the greenness of the region. They get about 1,200 millimeters of rain per year. So they get a ton of rain there. Um, not during, not usually during like their growing season. Usually it's, you know, between October and like April, mm-hmm. May. Um, but it's very, very lush there. So that's actually where the name comes from. There you but go. Thank you. All I, right. I don't think it's wrong to say that though because – Interestingly, when I was when I would go out to places, a lot of times they would offer you red, white, or green uh, <laughs> wine, and <laughs> like that happened a few times. We were like, it like took me by surprise, and I was like, excuse me. Um, so yeah, green wine is often referred to, you know, as being a verde. Uh, but no, it's actually, it's named for the region. The region's enormous. Um, I'll read you some of the, like the stats. Cause it's like, it's pretty astounding. So you've got several different sub-regions within uh, Vinga Verde. Um, like I said, 45 allowed varieties, but only about six of those are primarily used. Alvarino is a synonym for Alvarino in Spain. Um, that's the most expensive of the grapes. So that goes for a whopping thousand 
dollars or euros a ton. Um, Aveso, Lurero, Rinto, and uh, Trajadora, and Azal, although I saw very little Azal. Um, and we actually got to taste these uh, individually and do a little bit of blend. But there's uh, these are interesting factoids for you. 16,000 hectares of vineyards, 16,000 growers, but only 370 bottlers. Um, so there's more growers than producers. And here's why. So the region of Vino Verde, unlike the Douro, was not winemaking grape dominant. It was a bunch of families and farmers who would have their plots of land. And around the perimeter, that's where the grapes were grown. So they'd have all their crops for like eating, but then they would grow the grapes around that and they would sell them as a secondary source of income. So grape growing was not, so when you go to Vino Verde, you're not going to see these large, sprawling, contiguous vineyards. When you look out, you're going to see a patchwork of houses and like backyard farms with a couple of like vineyards planted. But the vines also don't look anything like you've ever seen. Have you ever heard of a pergola training system? I have. Yes. They're very high, okay. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You can walk underneath them underneath of them Mm -hmm. yeah and if you're if you're watching the youtube video i'll post the video uh of of me actually walking on i know i know that i'm only five foot two but still (laughs) i could walk with entire head clearance with the vines above me and you look up and the vine you know they're the the grapes were just like hanging above um so yeah it's you know it's definitely not it's a very different way of producing grapes and in fact it's still very like neighborly and like familial and like when you go to solero And you're walking from the tasting room facility down to the vineyard. You're like walking between people's houses. Like there's a school and then people's backyards and like laundry hanging. So it's not like you go to these vineyards and like that's the only thing you see. Like you're literally looking into like their neighbor's window, like watching them make breakfast. Like it's it's a very different experience. Um, But what's really cool is, you know, grape, like I said, grape growing is really more of a secondary source of income. They They take a lot of pride in doing it. But what they do is uh, they take off like an entire month around August and September to harvest not only their own vineyard, but also their neighbor's vineyard. So they'll all do this together. And that's, you know, that's what they do to earn a little extra money um, and then like take like a little vacation and help each other out. So it's a really interesting place to grow grapes. There's only a few regions that, you know, really focus where you see terraced vines. Um, real, and these those grow a little bit closer to the Douro. Um, there was something else I was going to say on that note though. Oh, so the one region that I think is really interesting, and I I think I wanted to go back to this Solero. Did you try it yet, by the way? I did. It's delicious. And I I think it's like when you're talking about them trying to make more age-worthy wine, like this is a serious wine. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what you see a lot in Vinga Verde is not only the addition of CO2, but you see the addition of sugar a lot. So these are very low alcohol wines, usually about 11 to 12 percent. Um, but a lot of times they're adding a little bit of sweetness because um, the acidity is so high and because that's sort of become the style. So they, they're adding sugar. But then you've got producers like Solero that are not necessarily adding sugar. Maybe they're adding a, you know a few grams per liter here and there. Um, so it's a much more serious, but in where Solero is, is in the region, sub-region of uh, Monsal a, a Melgaso, which you can only produce Alvarino from there. So all the other regions, you're going to see a blend of the other grapes. This is the only place where you're going to see 100% Alvarino. Huh. Um, and in order to say Monsal and, and Melgaso, that's what has to be in the bottle. 
So this is, you know, this is a very high quality Vino Verde. And this is where you're seeing a lot of the producers start to move toward. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're not, they're not, you know, injecting CO2. They're not adding sugar. They're doing things just a little bit differently than the rest of the region. And I think they're waiting for the rest of the region to sort of catch up. Interestingly, not a ton of organic farming happening. That's still, uh, they're having a lot of trouble figuring that out. I think one, because of the cost of being organic, but also Mm just because it is such a, a wet region, they're having Too a lot much of issues humidity. with like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So they're still working that stuff out. So a lot of these wines are not going to be organically grown. I think, you know, they're definitely moving towards like minimal stuff and Solero for sure is, is more minimal, um, intervention. The other thing that they, they do is, uh, kind of like our friend Annie Fabia in Coombsville, yes. you know, she's got her heritage project. Um, they also grow herbal teas in their oh. vineyard. Um, so if you go to Solero, you can have a little herbal tea alongside your Vino Verde. But I want to talk a little bit about this wine before we wrap up because it's so like bright and crisp and fresh and lemony. But there is like almost like a Sauvignon, like like a Sauvignon Blanc quality to it, mm-hmm. where it's like very citrusy and lemony. But it, it's a little kind of between like a Sauvignon Blanc and a Chardonnay, like a little appley as well. It's a little salty too, which I'm enjoying. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And there is like a little bit of spritz there. It's clean, it's crisp, it's vibrant. To me, like if you're going to drink and it's textured, right? So as we head into like these cooler months, um, we start talking about our winter white wines. Uh, I think this is a great example of a good mm-hmm. winter white that can pair with lots of different things. Um, serve it chilled. Don't, you know, make it super, super icy. Uh, you know, in a white wine glass, a standard white wine glass, like you would a Sauvignon Blanc is appropriate for this wine. And, um, you know, anything from cheese to uh, lighter proteins, fish, fresh vegetables, um, even root vegetables as we get into those. Uh, You can have a lot of fun with this wine or you can just drink it by itself. Um, This was the wine that was not in the wine club. This is available on on Wine Access, um, as is the the, the, uh, Doro Red. Um, we covered so much and I feel like I've been like enthusiastically over communicating my entire trip as I've tried to download uh, an entire month's worth of learning. Yeah. Um, what I miss? Anything? I mean, I'm just going to say I will not be surprised when you tell me that you're moving to Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not moving to Portugal. Based on this la- based on our discussion today, I'm just saying it's awesome. Yeah. I love it. You're so you clearly so passionate um and came away with such deep knowledge but enthusiasm for the wines from this country. It's it's wonderful. I mean, yeah. this is this is the best part of wine travel, right? Is coming it, back with this It really is new lens and understanding and then being able to tell people about it because I learned so much from you today. Well, thanks. I feel the same. I, um, I, wine travel is so important, you know, as much as wine access does an amazing job at conveying the story, the stories behind every bottle. I think being there, there is no substitution, seeing it, meeting the people, watching things happen, um, seeing the land, feeling the weather, uh, you really do get a, a different appreciation for, these places and the wines that come from them. So um, very, very grateful to uh, Vinga Verde and to the Simington family for for giving me the opportunity to come over there. And to myself, great job on making this a possibility <laughs> to spend a month in Portugal. Well done, me. Um, <laughs> I second I'm that. Teasing, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, no, su- super. I hope to be back uh, soon. But in the meantime, I have the wines to keep me occupied. Um, This has been so much fun. Thank you for being here as always. And thank you all for listening. If you guys 
aren't, like I said, subscribed to the podcast, please do that. Um, oh, you know what? We we did have some questions for the audience mm. uh, before we go. So let's let's knock through these a little bit. Um, are all port wines super sweet? Um, I mean, mostly. If we're talking fortified, yes. I mean, they can, they can vary yes. in their level. But yeah. again, we had two dry wines from Portugal. So we did. But port, yes, yes exactly. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Yes, port itself, not necessarily wines from Portugal. Exactly. Um, what this is this is something that I actually did miss that I'm I'm shocked that I did. What are some of your favorite port cocktails? Did you have white port and tonic while you were over there? I absolutely did. Yes. Yes. What, how is this not a thing all over the United States? What is happening that we have it, not caught on to white port and tonic? It's so refreshing. Um, and it's less boozy than gin. Yes. So you can, yes. you, especially on a hot day, you can have a couple. You're not going to be under the table. And yeah, this is, I mean, you go, you go there. This is their cocktail, this, um, this white port and tonic. Although I will say, we didn't mention this, but um, they're starting to make more and more pink port, um, yes. which is often used in cocktails as well. Yes. Yeah. Pink port is good. It's a little sweeter than the white port. But yeah, if you love gin and tonic or like any sort of like and tonic combination, I highly recommend getting yourself a bottle of white port and doing, you know, a little white port and tonic. They're delicious with just a squeeze of lime. Um, how long can port age for? Um, we covered this a little bit. Ruby, you don't really want to age that. It'll stay fresh in your open for like two weeks. Um, vintage port, like we said, 50 to 100 years. All the others, you really don't want to age. They're kind of ready to go. They're not going to go bad, um, but they're not meant for aging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of once vintage port is open, again, like I think of it as like two to three weeks is kind of like where you want to be max for those things. All great questions. Who are some of the top producers you recommend trying? Vanessa, you want to My in here? favorite is Quinta de Noval. I, yeah, they're great. I, I love them. I love their dry wines. I like their port. You know, they have that block. I think it's it's, it's just called Nacional of um, Prephylaxera vines on the property. Mm. They don't let anyone walk in this vineyard, by the way, because these well, are <laughs> for obvious reasons. Fair. But um, I just there was something about them I really fell in love with with them when I visited. Although the Symingtons are amazing as well, of course. I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard to say, and everyone is so nice. Yes. Yeah, I, I, they all drink a little bit differently. I think if you're someone that wants a little bit sweeter, Graham's tends to be a little sweeter than Coburn's, um, which tends to be drier. Dow's tends to be a little drier as well. So just slightly less sweetness. But if you like them super syrupy and sweet, still balanced, uh, Graham's is kind of where it's at. I think Graham's like Graham's 20 year tawny is like kind of one of my favorite wines on the planet. Like there's, there's very few things that beat that yeah. for me. How can I make port a part of my normal wine enjoyment? Any savory dish pairings? Cheese. Cheese. Yeah. Cheese, uh, for sure. I mean, you can definitely pair port with like with more savory dishes. It wouldn't be my first choice. But certainly if you – I've definitely had great experiences with like steak and a sweeter wine, especially if it's like really, really salty and very umami or even like dry aged um, where it's very gamey. A lot of times that sweetness can be really nice. You could also do it with uh, – and it would be a little bit tricky, especially because it's fortified. You could do it with spicier food. Just make sure that uh, whatever you're doing isn't, like, too spicy Mm -hmm. or, like, the fortification of the alcohol can kind of, like, amplify that instead of the sweetness cutting it. So that would be my recommendation. But cheese, 
cheese for sure. Um, okay, for real this time, that is our show. Thank you so much for being here. Um, if you're a member of the Wine Access Unfiltered Wine Club, uh, I really hope you enjoyed these wines for this episode. And if you did, Instagram them, tag us so we can repost you. And then also let us know with a review and a like, a subscribe or a comment below. Um, if you haven't signed up for it yet, you can do so by clicking the link in the description. Every four episodes, you get a new shipment of wines. There's four wines um, per shipment. And as I said, Vanessa and I select them ourselves. Mm -hmm. So you know that they're selfish picks because we drink them. Um. <laughs> the one time I'm, I'm not afraid to say I'm selfish is with the wine yes. picks. <laughs> yes. We're both very selfish with our wines. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast produced by Chappie Cottrell. We're your hosts, Amanda McCrossin and Vanessa Conlin. Thank you so much for listening and cheers. Mm -hmm.